You're listening to Nourish, Nurture, Breathe, a podcast dedicated to women at all stages of our health and wellness journey. I'm Christy from Christy Lee Nutrition. And I'm Cammy from This Mum's Kitchen. And together, we're here to inspire you with the knowledge and confidence to love into your mind, body, spirit, and lifestyle. Now set aside some time for you and join us on this cup-filling journey. Welcome to Nourish, Nurture, Breathe. This is episode number 15 and here we are, Cammy and Christy, and today we're going to be talking about an introduction into IBS. So in today's episode, we're going to learn what IBS is, we're going to learn about something called gut journaling and how that can be a first step in you understanding your IBS. We're going to look at first line therapy, which you can consider practicing before looking into the elimination of the low FODMAP diet. We're going to look at some non-diet therapies, as we always like to also look off the plate. And we're going to have a little look into the low FODMAP diet as well, which is what we call the second line therapy. So let's dive in and start with what IBS is. Um, So it stands for the irritable bowel syndrome. And I find that when searching to sort of explain IBS to, to clients and to and to people in general, it really helps to compare it with IBD, which is inflammatory bowel disease. And it's basically a disease that has a diagnosis, specific conditions and the specific root causes. Whereas IBS is a gut issue that a doctor or a dietitian or anybody else, we can't diagnose it, can we, Christy? Yeah, it's really complicated because it's not actually a disease or a condition. It doesn't have a pathological cause that we can identify yet. Um, It's really just a collection of symptoms, whereas IBD, which is inflammatory bowel disease, is actually a pathological condition. So Mm -hmm. they're quite different, but they sound almost the same because IBD, IBS, it's quite confusing. Yeah, and that can be one of the most frustrating people things for people with IBS I found that it can't you know it can't be diagnosed we don't know the root causes so therefore we don't have a simple treatment which works for everybody exactly and I think that a lot of people are they're stuck in this limbo because they they don't sometimes the doctor doesn't actually know what's going on with their gut and they often land with a diagnosis of IBS and it really could be a lot of other things. There's diverticular disease as well. There's lots of other potentials that it could be. So you definitely want to be checking for all of those different things. Um, But IBS is actually a pretty big deal. Mm. It's a really big deal across the world. In Australia, about 8% of Australians are affected by IBS. Um, Around the world, I think the prevalence is much more around 15%. Um, And for women especially, we're very much affected by it. We're about one and a half times more affected by it than men are. Mm. Um, and it's really interesting in looking into the reasons why that might be. And it's really to do with our hormones because our estrogen and our progesterone are changing all the time throughout the month. And I like to call progesterone the lazy hormone mm. because it makes our gut really lazy. And when women are pregnant, this is why they struggle with constipation because their progesterone is high and it makes their bowel really lazy. So mm. it moves really slow. Um, and GPs, they see this all the time. It accounts for about 50% of the GI cases that they see. Um, so that's massive, you know, of 
the amount of people coming in with gut problems, 50% are walking away with an IBS diagnosis. Yeah, yeah. Mm. And that's really just when pretty much everything else has been ruled out or been ruled out to a point of exclusion, at least at that time. Exactly. Yep. So let's take a look at some of the of some of the common symptoms that we can be looking for if we think we might be dealing with IBS. So some of the things that you would notice if you were going into your doctor and, and talking about IBS would be constipation, um, diarrhea. You might have one or the other, or you might have both. Mm. So with if you have diarrhea, it gets diagnosed as IBSD. If you have constipation, it's IBSC. If it's a mixture of the two, it's IBS-M, so IBS-mixed. Mm. Um, you might also have bloating, so that sort of distension of your abdominal area, your tummy area, which can be quite painful as well. Um, and then if you're bloating, you're very much likely to have a lot of gas. Yeah. So flatulence is quite a big problem. Um, and for some people, they also get nauseous from that. Mm -hmm. And some people get um, reflux as well. So kind of this whole gut system, but it can even play on um, yeah, nausea and, and how balanced you feel. So you might feel vertigo. Yeah, yeah. And you can also have symptoms that sort of can seem unrelated to your gut, which would be things like headaches, um, fatigue, insomnia, um, muscle pain, and also anxiety and depression. Um, which is a really interesting connection and it's um, connected with the gut-brain axis, which we'll talk about more um, later on in the episode. But what's really incredible is this statistic that 66% of people with IBS also fit the criteria for a mood disorder. Mm. So it just shows that connection between our gut and our brains. And, and it is this two-way conversation. And really, when, when looking to treat something like IBS, we should be looking at both of those areas. Um, which is, is really fascinating and really eye-opening, I think, a lot mm. of the time because with a lot of GI issues, you know, we just think it's about nutrition, about changing our diet, which, of course, is, is a massive factor, but to it's be considered... only one. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. And yeah. from experience, I can say I, uh, 10 out of 10 clients I've seen with IBS always report anxiety and depression, yeah. always. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And I think also let's just underline that with all of these symptoms, you know, it's normal for anyone to have any of these symptoms mm. or even a, a cluster of these symptoms every now and again. Um, but what's happening with IBS is that they're chronic and you've been experiencing them on average for at least one day per week for three months is what, is what you yeah. say, isn't it, Because it, it is, it's normal. We all get a bit gassy. Like I know if I've had too big a portion of like lentils, something like that, I'm probably going to be quite gassy the next day. And a lot of people from time to time get a little bit blocked up and may have, you know, looser stores, maybe had too much alcohol on a big mm. night out. Um, but if you are having some more sinister, sinister symptoms, um, these are things that you really want to definitely make sure you're seeing your GP for. So some of the red flags would be if you've never had these symptoms and then you're experiencing them for the first time over the age of 50. Mm. And that's because we know that bowel cancer is, is more prone for people who are um, aging. Um, anyone who's got a colorectal cancer, irritable, uh, sorry, um, inflammatory bowel disease or celiac disease in their family. Mm. So if you've got a family history of any of these bowel conditions, if you notice bleeding, um, so blood in your stool, um, if you're having to wake up in the middle of the night and use the toilet, so you know it's okay to get up and use the toilet to do a number one, but if you're getting up and doing a number two and that's happening all the time, that's um, definitely a red flag. 
Um, other things like if you're losing weight and you're not trying to lose weight, mm-hmm. um, if you're having persistent symptoms and they kind of like they worsen and become more severe quite quickly over time, um, vomiting, fever, if you notice mucus in the stool, so it's very floaty or um, yeah has like a like a film sort of on it. Mm-hmm. Um, other actually another really good one is if it has a very very strong smell. So, um, or if it's very white in color, mm. um, yeah, that, so really if you're having any kind of red flag symptoms that I've just mentioned, you should always see a GP when you have any symptoms, but those symptoms specifically, you want to make sure you're getting, um, had a, yeah, having a look into them. Mm-hmm. And of course, you know, so, so much of the conversation is often around, you know, what's the cause or what can the causes be? And that's where I've found that a lot of the frustration can come as well for people who have been told they have IBS and they just don't understand where the cause was mm. and really what they can do about it um, other than treat the symptoms. And sort of sadly and frustratingly um you know there is no as we said there is it's not a specific condition there hasn't been one sort of common route that's been identified for every individual's experience of IBS and it it is always unique um so you know a a great way to a great place to start is really to sort of look into yourself and, and start to identify your personal triggers and things like that we'll talk to you about um methods that you can you can use to to bring these in but i let's have a sort of let's start getting into this connection with the gut brain axis and how for a long time ibs was considered to be largely psychosomatic and you know it was sort of almost brushed off Mm. for that as well you know it's all in your head yeah sort of thing that's horrible yeah yeah and and now we really understand that that is not the case but what we do understand as we were saying before is that it is a a GI issue and it is also um you know a neurological brain issue as well um, and it's through that two-way communication and connection between the gut and the brain and that sort of constant conversation between the two and so now it's sort of commonly believed that IBS is caused by any combination of things that can disrupt the nervous system in the gut the production of the digestive enzymes and also the muscular reflex system. So do you want to talk about some of those um, root causes? Yeah, so we, we don't know what causes it, but we know what is consistently seen in people mm. with IBS. And the consistencies are that most people have this kind of altered gut motility. So that means that the gut either moves too quickly or it moves too slowly. So it's either lazy or it's, it's very, very fast. Um, we know that there's that level of anxiety and stress that can come with that too. So if you're very nervous about, you know, public speaking or going to a new exercise class or anything that might make you feel a bit on edge, you might also notice that you really need to use the toilet. Mm. Um, and that can happen in people who wouldn't say diagnose themselves with IBS. It's, that's a very normal reaction for others. They get so nervous that everything just kind of shuts off mm. and, um, and they clench and they hold onto um, the stool. Um, other things would be like um, low level inflammation in the body or immune system activation. So IBS can often be triggered by um, you know, gastroenteritis. That's really common that then you really struggle with milk afterwards. So mm. lactose becomes a problem. Um, or parasites and, and other types of viruses as well. So I, I have a lot of clients who say I was perfectly fine and then one day I had this infection 
it was quite a bad one. And then from then my gut's never been the same. Yeah. 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 Um, Other things would be like the gut microbiome, not having the right balance. And we've talked a bit about that in our last season Mm. um, with gut health and immunity. And then with um, IBS, there's, it's not proven yet, but studies are starting to find that people with IBS have a different type of bacteria growing in their gut in different quantities than people who don't have IBS. Mm -hmm. So that's definitely one of the potential causes. But something that is very consistent across everybody who has has IBS is organ sensitivity. And so we do wonder if people with IBS naturally just have a very nervous gut. Mm -hmm. They can feel everything that's happening because there's been studies where they look at someone, two, two people, one with IBS, one without, someone, they both eat the same um, load of carbohydrate that would cause gas to be produced in the gut. Mm. So then they both have the exact same amount of gas in their gut, but one reports symptoms and the other does not. Yeah. So yeah, do, do people with IBS just have really sensitive tummies? Mm. Mm. And that sort of connects back to just to those, that saying, doesn't it? That gut feeling. Yeah. You know? I love that. I yeah. love gut feeling. Like, on, it really is. It is our second brain down yeah, there. Yeah, totally. Mm. And it, so, it's so interconnected. And, and that's, yeah, that's where this gut-brain axis comes in. And let's have a little, a little dive into that. Mm. We're not going to go massively into it, but just to sort of create some understanding around it. So we have this bi-directional communication between the brain and the gut. And we also have a nervous system in our, in our gut called the enteric nervous system, which is part of the autonomic nervous system and it controls all the muscle contractions and, ref- and reflexes that happen um, during our digestion. So it's, you know, it's a really incredibly important system. And IBS is categorised by a disturbance of some sort in this autonomic nervous system. And that's what, um, partly what Christy was talking about before, which can be considered as a motility dysfunction um, and is now being considered as a breakdown in communication between the gut and the brain. So the result, therefore, is this hypersensitivity and it means the body starts responding to stimuli that it normally wouldn't. Um, so that can you know, be part of the explanation of those clients coming in saying, you know, mm. I was totally fine, then this happened mm-hmm. and, and now I'm not. Um, which I just find to be totally yeah. fascinating. I have a, um, a very good friend of mine who, after her pregnancy, so in that sort of early postpartum days and weeks, her anxiety levels really changed and she never had IBS before, but then was asking me questions saying, you know, I've obviously just had my baby and my gut is just not the same. Mm. And we went through the diet and we're looking at different things and now, these are foods she tolerated really well before, mm. um, but now with the new sort of anxiety of being a new mom and am I doing all the right things? And, you know, it's, she's a first-time mom as well. Yeah. Um, that anxiety was actually what we found was the cause of her IBS. Yeah, mm. yeah. And so did you practice some like, like stress management and anxiety management techniques? Do you know what's funny? She's actually a psychologist. Oh, wow. <laughs> so yeah. once we got down to the bottom of it being anxiety... Well, she had her own toolkit. She knew exactly then what to do. So, yeah, yeah I, I think I just kind of left it in her hands to go and, um, yeah, implement all the different things that she uses with her clients. Yeah, and so what happened? Did she end up sort of healing herself? Yeah, yeah. she has, yeah. yeah. So I think, I think actually what I notice in, in many clients is once we figure out what it is, whether it's um, a group of foods, whether it's the anxiety or something else, 
once they learn what it is, it's like the symptoms start to improve on their own mm. because that's, you, you get that sense of control yeah. back. Like you, you go, okay, I know what's causing my symptoms. I know how to deal with them. And just that knowledge in itself is enough to heal somebody. Yeah. Um, I've seen that yeah, time and time again. Um, I had a client one time who realised her IBS started right when um, she went through a very big divorce with her husband. Mm. And she obviously at the time she was holding so much in. She had young kids and didn't want them to see the emotion that it was causing her and the distress. So she kind of held it in. And that was when her IBS started. And when we figured that out, all of a sudden she kind of, you know, it was like a, a weight off her a chest. Yeah, yeah, a release of just knowing what it was. And with that, um, was able to heal really quickly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And yeah I mean, I, th- I think, you know, it's one of those things where science obviously has to delve so deeply and we want to understand, we want to understand why and we want the research and, and you know, the proof as much as we possibly can. But I think also if you just listen to stories like that, it's, it's common mm. sense, isn't it? That, it is, yeah. You know, you're holding all of this emotion, all of this tension in your gut, literally. Um, and if you're able to release that through, mm. you know, various practices, then of course you're going to find some some relief. Yeah, um, it's incredible. Yeah. yeah. And so the gut is considered out to be the second brain, isn't mm. it? Um, which, is, which is really incredible. And there are... 100 million neurons in the small intestine alone, which is mind-boggling. Um, and there are about 20 to 30 new, different types of neurotransmitters in the brain, and the gut has the, the exact same variety. So really, you know, it, it, to- it totally holds its own in terms of this title of, of, of the second brain. And these are the language through which the neurons communicate and that our gut has the same ability to communicate as our brain um, and appears to be equally complex and and smart as our brain. So of course, when we're looking at something like IBS, to look at these these off-the-plate techniques as well is is really beneficial. Okay, so let's get into some practical steps that people can do um, when they either suspect that they might have IBS or they, that they think they already know that they have IBS and they'd like to start recognising some triggers? So I think we talk about this all the time, but it really is the first step that anyone needs to take and it's to really increase your self-awareness mm. and get it down on paper or your phone or your computer, whatever's easiest for you. Um, but I always tell my clients, you know, I, I'm not there with you when these symptoms happen. Um, and I don't understand the severity because I'm not in your body. So if you can get me, get a, a, a gut journal happening, and this would be something that you would do at least for seven days, um, and you really want to make sure that you have things in there like what you normally eat, what time you're eating, how much, so how big the portion is. Um, and then there's all those kind of easy to forget things as well, like chewing gum, um, mints, supplements medications because all of those Mm. can also impact your gut and Mm. you know you might and drinks and drinks a hundred percent i think we forget to put the drinks on Mm. um it's all those bits in between we most people are very good at remembering breakfast lunch dinner Mm. not so much the snacks the drinks and all the other little things so Mm. it's really whatever goes into your mouth put it on the page um and yeah it, it also it's good to note what else you're doing in that day. So if you're doing exercise, if there was a stressful moment at work or with the kids, anything like that, um, that's really good information 
to help me understand that is it a, a diet um, or a food that's causing this or is it potentially something that's happened in your day that caused it mm-hmm. um, so usually then I mean at this point if you haven't got a, a dietitian or a coach on board you really could start to implement what we call then the first line strategies mm-hmm. um, so anybody can have a go at this it's not dangerous to do on your own um, and they would be things like um, looking at, like having a look at your journal and noticing any patterns in yeah. it. So can you see that, wow, I didn't realize I have so many coffees a day because caffeine's a really big gut irritant. Mm. Or I didn't realize I'm, I'm actually exercising a lot less than I thought. I'm only moving my body once per week. Mm. Exercise is a really big factor that can um, especially cause constipation. Um, other things like, water intake I think that we get so distracted in our day-to-day lives that we're not really monitoring how much we're drinking most of us sort of know I'm only having this many glasses but Mm. I think once you've got it written down it's quite surprising isn't it yeah and so often just keeping hydrated is such Mm. a sort of such a vital part to so much of our health isn't it and it's such a, a sort of once you've got the habit such an easy practice to keep up and with so many with so many benefits Other things that you might notice is that there's a lot of fried foods or takeaway foods. Um, Anything like that can, you know, easily cause particularly diarrhea or gut pains. Um, Probably, I think we've talked about this before, but one of the best best known ones is um, fish and chips. Yeah. It always seems to just, yeah, upset my gut and I know it upsets yours as well. Pizza is probably the other one too. Um, Spicy pizza. Oh, are you? (laughs) lucky yay (laughs) um other things like spicy food so that's definitely going to set your gut if you've got a very sensitive gut Mm. um carbonated beverages and that includes champagne i was talking to a client the other day who who noticed um every time she has champagne that seems to really upset her gut Mm. Mm. um chewing gum has something in it that um, is called xylitol it's a it's a sweetener and if you actually look at the back of a chewing gum packet it does say may have a laxative effect so if you're chewing chewing gum all the time that's a really sneaky one yeah and xylitol can also it's a sugar alcohol isn't it Mm. and it can it can also be um used in toothpastes especially children's toothpastes um yeah so it's 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 one to look it's one to look out for Yeah, yeah absolutely and then some something really simple would just be, and this is probably a bit hard for, for you to work out on your own. This is one as I, t- I tend to recommend that you maybe talk to a dietitian or coach about, and it would be the, the meal patterns, the portions, and the speed of your eating. Um, so if you're having very large meals, very spaced out across your day, you're more likely to have trouble with IBS yeah. than if you have small, more regular meals. Um, it's that thing of eating only yeah. to 80% of yeah. satiation, isn't it? But having that confidence that you know when your next meal is coming and it's not so far away. Exactly. So you can have those smaller portions and, and feel confident about it. Because you, you have to remember that your bowel is trying to digest food. So if you absolutely slam it with a massive portion of food and then give it nothing for way too long, and that usually then results in eating too big a portion because you're starving... Um, your gut often can't digest all of that food at once and it just goes straight through. Yeah. Yeah. Um, speed of eating and chewing your food. That's that's one that a lot of people struggle with because if it's not your natural um, way to be a slow eater, 
you can, I think I, I see a lot of clients who they've just put food in their mouth and they've already got their next spoon ready. Yeah. And before they've even swallowed what's in their mouth, the next one goes in. Yeah. And that results in someone who eats their meal in about five minutes. Yeah. And it's a really easy tendency to fall into. Mm. I mean, I used to be a way slower eater before I met my husband. He's a really, really fast eater. And so I found that I've sort of, I still finish my meal way after him and he's gone back for seconds before I'm halfway through mine normally. But I've definitely sped up to sort of compensate. Mm. And then I find, right, I, you know, when I'm being mindful about my eating, I'm, I'm actually consciously chewing the food putting the mm-hmm. you know knife or fork down not getting another one until I've you know really swallowed and sort of thought about it and it it is quite a conscious effort isn't yeah. it to change a habit like that absolutely and I I think one of my favorite strategies around that is just that mindfulness around putting your cutlery down between mm. mouthfuls so you know instead of getting the next one layered up and ready to go just if you put them down until you've swallowed, once you've swallowed that portion of food in your mouth, pick your cutlery back up and then go again. Yeah. And that will quite easily get you out to about 15 minutes. But when you're not being mindful, if you're watching TV, sometimes even if you just get distracted in conversation, you can find yourself just falling back in and just sort yeah, of yeah. digging in again. So it's just practice, practice, practice. Yeah. It can take many months of consistency to try and yeah change that one yeah and then there's all those mindful eating practices around like Christy was saying you know you don't want to be eating at the desk you don't want to be eating in front of the tv um you know to try and avoid that sort of mindless eating where you're sort of eating whilst doing other things or like in the car or anything like that um or you know while you're standing up and just shoving shoving food in and that's a surefire way definitely to be eating um your food a little bit too quickly totally um, and then if you're on any supplements, watch out for iron because iron can constipate people quite easily, especially yeah. if you're on the really sort of heavy duty ones like ferrograd C. Um, and then the opposite effect happens when you take too much magnesium. Mm-hmm. So that will cause diarrhea quite quickly. So sometimes that could just be sneakily sitting in your diet or you've recently introduced it. And then you're thinking what food is causing this, but actually it's your supplements. Yeah. 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 And we've also got other things like um, like stress management. So that's looking at, you know, the off the plate and that's that gut brain axis again, that connection um, and and looking to, to practices like yoga, like Tai Chi, like meditation. But, you know, look, it can it can even be things like going for a lovely walk. Um, you know, having some downtime to read a book in the sunshine. Um, of course, those diaphragmatic breaths mm. that we talk about all the time. So those are those deep, nourishing breaths. You breathe into your diaphragm, your tummy comes out as you breathe in and goes in as you breathe out. And they're lovely and slow. You know, even if you start to, to have a regular practice, like 10 of those diaphragmatic breaths a day, um, that can already really make some incredible changes um, inside and in terms of stress, in terms of inflammation, in terms of all of these incredibly powerful sort of mechanisms in our in our body. And you just set yourself up with a cue. So for me, I do my 10 diaphragmatic breaths when I'm putting my kids to bed. So when we're having that mm. cuddle and I get them to do it with me and so they're ending their day in that lovely sort of nourishing way. And that way, because I'm doing it for them, it's a sort of, you know, foolproof cue that I'm going to do it for me as well. Um, 
Another thing we didn't talk about, we have talked about drinks, but juice mm. is a big one, isn't it? Yes. Um, and, you know, that's the concentrated juice, but it's also the freshly squeezed juice, um, extremely high in fructose and, you know, to, to be limited, yeah. really. Yeah. It kind of fits in with the concept of portions because juice is a, a way that we're consuming a very unnatural amount of fruit. Mm. The portion of fruit that you can fit into that juice and then the fructose load, our body just cannot break down yeah. in enough time. And then bang, go straight yeah, through. Totally, and also because we're minus the fiber, right? Yeah, minus yeah. the fiber, and we drink it very fast. Yeah. And it's a liquid, so liquid would naturally have a really fast transit time through the gut. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then the other one I like to mention is toxins. So, environmental toxins, um, toxins on your food, so things like pesticides. You know, you'd be wanting to go organic where you can. Um, where you can't, you know, you can be peeling those fruits and vegetables and also, um, you know, washing them really well, washing them in apple cider vinegar and water is, is great. And you can also get one of those veggie cloths um, that sort of help to, to, move, to remove some of that extra residue from your food. And um, also be looking at things like your household cleaning products and your cosmetic and beauty products as well and be going as natural and low tox as you possibly can. Um, we're sort of jumping around a bit, but I'll give one more foodie sort of tip, which is to make foods as digestible as they can possibly be. So rather than having, you know, raw food salad, maybe you'd be going for lightly steamed vegetables um, instead, for sure. And then from there, um, I also like to talk a little bit about herbal supplements that can be helpful. Um, so marshmallow root can help soothe the, in, the intestinal linings and you can have that in tea. Um, other great teas, um, are chamomile, licorice, which is really beautiful and sweet. I often have a licorice tea um, in the evening when I want something sweet. Um, and that's antispasmodic, um, which means it can help relax um, intestinal cramping, but it's also just really soothing and calming um, anyway. Um, turmeric is a great anti-inflammatory and um, there have been some studies that show that vitamins A, B, C and zinc can help with deficiencies that can occur with IBS as well. So you know, even something as simple as having a good multivitamin um, can be a, a valid option to explore for sure. Um, do we want to have a little bit more of a further look into sort of non-dietary therapies? We've talked about mm. yoga and meditation and diaphragmatic breathing, um, but you've also got gut-directed um, hypnotherapy yeah. as well. And I won't go too deep into it because it's not something that I specialise in. It's actually something that a psychologist would do. And I, I would highly advise anyone who's really interested in the concept of gut-directed hypnotherapy that they go and seek out a psychologist who has the skills in both, so they have the gut-directed hypnotherapy skill and, this, and the psychology. Um, so not just any hypnotherapy will work for this. Um, but the really cool and exciting thing about it is that 80% of people who have IBS find relief in gut-directed hypnotherapy. That's incredible. So it's, it's literally as equally as effective as the low FODMAP diet. Mm. Um, the main difference between, so the, and we'll talk about the low FODMAP diet soon, but the low FODMAP diet can help solve your symptoms in pretty much three to seven days. So you will find relief very, very quickly. But gut-directed hypnotherapy takes many, many weeks to months to have an effect. So... So they're both just as effective and, and I, I often recommend clients start something that would help resolve their symptoms quick 
to start with, just so that you feel good. You can, you know, get back to work, go back to socializing, kind of find some normalcy in your life. Mm. And then bring in this gut directed hypnotherapy or any kind of other um, sort of mindful techniques, yoga, tai chi, whatever's going to work for you um, as something that's going to be like a maintenance. It's going to actually target you at the brain so we've targeted you at the gut with the food and now we're going to target the brain and kind of come at it with this like bi-directional you know treatment almost yeah yeah Yeah. um the only other one that a psychologist could do as well would be um cognitive cognitive behavioral therapy um so that's very much the sort of gold standard technique that a psychologist would use and that's really useful if you've got very deep underlying issues so like the example i gave before where Um, that client had a really terrible divorce Mm. that might need a little bit more digging a little bit more counseling and therapy to help resolve and then get the you know the gut symptoms to improve yeah I find this whole sort of conversation really empowering though Mm. and I and I hope the listeners are as well in that you know with IBS yes okay it's different every time we don't have a clear diagnosis we don't know the clear root causes but we can come at it from all these different Mm. angles and and you get help from all these different professionals and experts and and really find that unique and individual um path to Mm. to feeling well um which is yeah really really empowering um so those are absolutely fabulous tips and i've never heard of gut directed hypnotherapy i'm going to go off and 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 be a geek and learn all, all about it um so obviously we're talking about ibs so of course we're going to talk about um the low fodmap diet um so this is the diet that reduces symptoms of IBS in about 70% of the people. Um, but it's not intended as a long-term solution. And as we just said, you know, we, we are treating the symptoms. But as Christy said, so often with IBS, you know, you just want relief, don't mm. you? You just want to feel okay. You just want the pain to stop. Um, you just want to stop feeling uncomfortable and so this is a really great um, and quick mm. way of, of giving yourself some some relief um, just as a really sort of um, clear guidance here you absolutely would not undertake the low FODMAP diet on your own um, and you absolutely would undertake it with the guidance of a specialised FODMAP dietitian and um monash uni has that list yeah. don't they christy i'm also one of them i don't know if i've ever told you that no oh okay there we go <laughs> and christy is one of them so oh, christy. fantastic hence my passion in the area <laughs> um so would you like to go into them yeah. as as you are one of those <laughs> um would you like to go into fodmaps what they are yeah. where they occur yeah totally so FODMAP is a really funny word. Um, A lot of people will ask me, what the hell does that mean? Um, So FODMAP is actually an acronym and it stands for fermentable, oligosaccharides, disaccharides, monosaccharides and polyols. So that is a a very big mouthful, as you can hear. Um, So we're not going to sit there and call it all of those names, um, but FODMAP just kind of is a nice short way to say it. Um, But all of those words are the kind of chemical name for the carbohydrates that um, that cause these disturbances in the gut. Mm -hmm. Um, And so they're so FODMAPs, they're not to be feared. They're actually a really wonderful, healthy group of carbohydrates and fibers that actually feed our good gut bacteria. So we we need them in our diet. And that's why someone who 
you know, may follow a low FODMAP diet for too long. And I have seen it in many, many instances where someone has been doing it for 10 years. Oh, gosh. And they come in with a lot of gut problems because they've been starving their bacteria for a very long time. Yeah. So we need to um, we need to bring them back in, but it's a it's a very slow process. Yeah, because these are basically the fermentable carbohydrates, aren't they? That 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 sort of feed the gut bacteria and that, yeah. and that we want. And for for healthy people, it's wonderful. But for people with IBS, it can create those yeah. unwanted symptoms. Yeah. And it's like that study I said before where. You know, these fermentable carbohydrates, they're fermenting in the gut, the bacteria fermenting and making all this gas. Um, and someone who doesn't have IBS with the same amount of gas in their gut doesn't notice these symptoms. But that sensitive tummy that yeah. the person with IBS has, um, any sort of movement of gas and water is really noticeable. Um, so FODMAPs, they tend to be very small in size compared to other types of carbohydrates and fibers. And because of their small size, they drag water into the gut. So it, it by osmosis, mm -hmm. um, that's the term that's used when water moves from a, a high concentration to a low concentration. Um, and so we've got the water coming into the bowel. That's obviously going to start causing that distension or the bloating. Um, we also then have the, I call it like the, the big party. So the bacteria are getting, it's like a big feast. It's Christmas day. All this food has just arrived in their gut, in the, in the gut. And they're just going to start gobbling it up. And naturally as a byproduct, they just make a lot of gas. Mm, mm. Um, so that is partially, you know, why we also, um, we have our own gas that we make as well. It's actually their gas. Yeah. <laughs> we also make some gases ourselves as well, but <laughs> largely it is from the bacteria. <laughs> Um, so most people, um, with these sensitive tummies, they have so many nerves that line the gut that when these, um, sensations of water and gas and gas are building up in the gut, it causes it that expansion. And then the nerves, they get upset about that. So they start tingling and firing that signals up to the brain. I'm not happy. Yeah. So that's that pain that you might experience from your, your tummy starting to poke out. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so what some of these foods are, um, there are five different groups. So we've got fructose. Um, that would be things like fruit. So that's why we were saying before fruit, fruit juice, juice yeah. is such a problem. Um, but honey and oddly asparagus is another example. Yeah. And this is not an exhaustive list. There is a lot more food that fit into all these categories, but I'm just going to give a couple of examples yeah. of each of them. In fact, one of the techniques um, they taught us in, in my course was to, to just try eliminating fruit for two weeks. Yeah. And just see how you feel. Um, you know, absolutely not as a long-term strategy, but just, you know, in those first, when you're just trying out a few things, looking at triggers um, and not moving quite into the low FODMAPs just yet, that can be, um, Definitely. Can be an easier, sort of easier route in at least. Because, yeah, this isn't an easy one and I'll explain the protocol that we follow, but um, it, it really also depends on your symptoms. So if you've got um, more loose stools or diarrhea, it's very likely to be either fructose or lactose more mm -hmm. so. Or your sugar alcohols like xylitol, mannitol, sorbitol, those types of foods. Um, but if you're getting other types of symptoms like the constipation and the gas, it's probably going to be more these other two groups called fructans mm. and, and goss. Mm. And so you can you can start to kind of tailor it a bit. But I think that for anybody who's having generally tummy issues, like 
probably lactose and fructose are your two number one culprits yeah. to start looking at for sure. Um, but yeah, that's, so that's your other group, lactose. So it comes in all dairy products except hard cheeses. Mm. So that's great. You can still have hard cheese. Um, polyols, which include sorbitol, xylitol, mannitol, and you can get that in avocado and stone fruits. Um, mannitol. Sorry, I mentioned mannitol, but this is the other, this is the mannitol group. Mushroom, cauliflower, and celery. The fructans and the goss, they're the really gassy ones, um, comes in wheat, garlic, and onion. And then the galacto-oligosaccharides, so beans, lentils, yeah. peas, butternut pumpkin. Or your legumes. Yeah. And we don't want to cut them out forever, so because I think we just love them so much, but they definitely can be a gas-causing one. Mm. I know that I've had that problem. <laughs> well, that's right, even people without you know, specifically sensitive guts. Yeah, And that, sure. that's so important to make that comment because FODMAPs are not bad foods. We need to eat them to feed our bacteria. Um, and having some of these symptoms of IBS is completely normal. It's just that when these symptoms impact your quality of life, they stop you from going to work, they stop you wanting to go out and see your yeah. friends, that's when it's becoming a big problem. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's also really important to underline that with a low FODMAP diet, um, you know, you're, you're eating low FODMAP foods because, yes. you know, you're not, not having any. And um, and there's there's that criteria, isn't it? It's high FODMAP foods, moderate FODMAP foods and low FODMAP foods. And what we're doing with the low FODMAP diet is having yeah. the low FODMAP foods. That's it. You yeah. actually, you, you cannot totally eliminate FODMAPs yeah. because they're present in so many foods. Mm. Um, but you would have, yeah. The concentration so, is a lot lower. Yeah. yeah. And that's where I think, that's where a lot of confusion can come in. You can think you're following a low FODMAP diet, but there's a lot to say about portions mm. because avocado is, so it's obviously really high in sorbitol, like I said before, but if you only ate an eighth of an avocado, I don't know who's going to do that, but if you <laughs> wanted to, you could eat an eighth and that would be considered a low FODMAP portion. Yeah. Um, same with something like apple. Like there is a low FODMAP portion of apple, but again, it's so small, kind of like the avocado that we wouldn't even bother with it. Yeah. yeah. So with the calculation of low FODMAP um, foods, would you be looking over the course of a day or would you be looking at every specific meal? It's more yeah based on meal time. Yeah. So if you wanted to have, say you bought an avocado, you could have your eighth of an avocado at breakfast, another eighth at lunch and another eighth at dinner and you would be okay. Yeah. You just wouldn't want to have more than the eighth in one sitting. So yeah. you want sort of a three to four hour separation of the meals. So you're looking at the specific meal. So that's why yeah. there can be things like low FODMAP, you know, recipe collections online yeah. and that sort of thing. Because it's just the individual recipe that, that matters. Yeah. And that's why some people might see a low FODMAP recipe and, and it does have, say, oh, I don't know, it has something that you didn't think you could eat. Oh, um, a good example would be like chickpeas. You can have a quarter of a cup of chickpeas at a time. So mm. if you put a whole can of chickpeas in an entire soup or casserole, your individual portion of chickpeas is probably going to be less than a quarter of a cup. Yeah, yeah. So it's still a low FODMAP recipe. I think that's where some people do get confused. Like, yeah. what the hell? There's chickpeas in here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, okay, so talk us through the elimination protocol because it's, yeah, it's definitely needs to be understood, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. So as Cami mentioned before, do not try to follow the low FODMAP diet for a long time. It's it's an elimination diet. And so that means that it follows 
a period of eliminating FODMAPs. So we go on the low FODMAP diet and that is quite strict for anywhere between two to six weeks. You can get symptom relief within the first week, but usually um, there's a bit of to and fro. You accidentally eat something you didn't think was you know, high FODMAP and so your symptoms come back a bit. And so we just, you spend that time really getting to know the low FODMAP diet. And then if you've had five symptom-free days in a row, you then get moved to the re-challenge phase. So that's um, an eight to 10 week um, challenge. So there's a, a representative food from each FODMAP group that you'll try one week at a time to notice if your symptoms come back. So you should be symptom-free on the elimination phase. And then you might only notice that your symptoms come back on maybe three of the groups, Mm. maybe two of the groups. I've never, ever met someone who's been um, intolerant to all the groups. So it's really just nutting out um, which ones we need to be careful of and which ones you can quite freely reintroduce into your diet. Mm. Um, And so that's the third step. The third step is bring back in all the foods that you didn't react to but keep out the ones that you did react to. And then in saying that though, every six months, you can go and do that re-challenge again with that food because we know that people's tolerance changes over time. Yeah, yeah. so it's if you do react to something, it might not be forever. Mm. Yeah, it's mm. worth testing again, especially if you're going to start investigating the, um, the, the gut-brain stuff. If you're going to start doing some gut-directed hypnotherapy or mindfulness, yoga, those types of things, you might find that that settles your stomach down and then you can start eating some of those trigger foods again quite yeah. easily. Yeah, and I think that would be the, I mean, for me, for sure, the pathway that I would recommend, mm. you know, that, that sort of bilateral, at least multilateral pathway of, you know, going at it with the, with the quick sort of solution of the diet but also looking off the plate and and finding other solutions and so that um adapted FODMAP diet that long-term one that's going to be different for everybody isn't it and that's going to be based on their specific triggers and yeah it's totally individual so someone you know you look at someone else's FODMAP diet and it will be different to yours um but I think that's that's what makes us different and interesting yeah 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 yeah, that's beautiful so um before we wrap up because we yeah I think we've covered everything that we that we wanted to um we just want to close by saying that if you are struggling with IBS um we totally understand how frustrating that is and um and how painful and how sort of limiting it can it can feel and you know just to invite you to give yourself the permission to sort of allow that frustration and feel it and explore it and um and then I guess sort of embrace it and decide on the pathways that are going to work for you and find the right support system um, be it with a dietitian, be it with a coach, be it with a meditation teacher, be it with a psychologist, be it with all of the above. Um, and just give yourself the permission to understand that this is a serious, this is a big deal, you know. But I think because so many people have it, mm. it can be really trivialised, you know. Um, and if it's if it's making these sort of detrimental effects to your life, then it's not trivial, is it? It's... um. It's definitely a you know a, a big deal and one that you are totally allowed to dedicate time and resources to finding your your unique solution um, yeah. to for sure. Um, so to wrap up the episode, we've talked about what is IBS and we've sort of compared it to IBD to help with that level of understanding. We've given you lots of practical tips 
um, around gut journaling, around those first line therapies that you can consider practicing before embarking on a low FODMAP diet. And we've looked at different non-dietary therapies. So that's that gut brain axis, um, you know, the meditation, the yoga, the Tai Chi, whatever it may be for you, the counseling. Um, and then we're looking at the second line therapy, you know, that, that low FODMAP diet, um, extremely specialised journey, which you should definitely be following with Christy or another dietitian who is specialised in FODMAPs near you. So thank you for listening. We'll see you for episode number 16. Thank you so much for listening. We're really grateful for the time you spent with us and can't wait to do it again. If you're enjoying this podcast, please hop over to Apple Podcasts or Facebook and leave us a rating and review. It really helps other people find the podcast. And if you'd like to get in touch, please reach out to us via the Nourish, Nurture, Breathe Facebook or Instagram pages and check out nourishnurturebreathe.com for our show notes. Thank you and until next time, remember to nourish, nurture and breathe every day.